Section 12 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, by John Calvin. Translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 7, Part 1. The Law Given, Not to Retain a People for Itself, but to keep alive the hope of salvation in Christ until his advent. The divisions of this chapter are, 1. The moral and ceremonial law, a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, sections 1 and 2. 2. This true of the moral law, especially its conditional promises, these given for the best reasons, in what respect the observance of the moral law is said to be impossible, sections 3 through 5. 3. Of the threefold office and use of the moral law, sections 6 through 12. Antinomians refuted, section 13. 4. What the abrogation of the law, moral and ceremonial, sections 14 to 17. Sections 1. The whole system of religion delivered by the hand of Moses in many ways pointed to Christ. This exemplified in the case of sacrifices, ablutions, and an endless series of ceremonies. This proved, one, by the declared purpose of God, two, by the nature of the ceremonies themselves, three, from the nature of God, four, from the grace offered to the Jews, five, from the consecration of the priests. Two, proof continued. Six, from a consideration of the kingdom erected in the family of David. Seven, from the end of the ceremonies. Eight, from the end of the moral law. 3. A more ample exposition of the last proof. The moral law leads believers to Christ. Showing the perfect righteousness required by God, it convinces us of our inability to fulfill it. It thus denies us life, adjudges us to death, and so urges us to seek deliverance in Christ. 4. The promises of the law, though conditional, founded on the best reason this reason explained. 5. No inconsistency in giving a law, the observance of which is impossible. This proved from reason, and confirmed by scripture. Another confirmation from Augustine. 6. A consideration of the office and use of the moral law shows that it leads to Christ. The law, while it describes the righteousness which is acceptable to God, proves that every man is unrighteous. 7. The law fitly compared to a mirror, which shows us our wretchedness. This derogates not in any degree from its excellence. 8. When the law discloses our guilt, we should not despond, but flee to the mercy of God. How this may be done. 9. Confirmation of the first use of the moral law from various passages in Augustine. 10. A second use of the law is to curb sinners this most necessary for the good of the community at large, and this in respect not only of the reprobate, but also of the elect, previous to regeneration, this confirmed by the authority of an apostle. 11. The law showing our wretchedness disposes us to admit the remedy. It also tends to keep us in our duty. Confirmation from general experience. 12. The third and most appropriate use of the law respects the elect. 
one it instructs and teaches them to make daily progress in doing the will of god two urges them by exhortation to obedience testimony of david how he is to be reconciled with the apostle thirteen the profane heresy of the antinomians must be exploded argument found on a passage in david and another in moses fourteen last part of the chapter treating of the abrogation of the law in what respect any part of the moral law abrogated 15 the curse of the law how abrogated 16 of the abrogation of the ceremonial law in regard to the observance only 17 the reason assigned by the apostle applicable not to the moral law but to ceremonial observances only these abrogated not only because they separated the jews from the gentiles but still more because they were a kind of formal instruments to attest our guilt and impunity christ by destroying these is justly said to have taken away the handwriting that was against us and nailed it to the cross one from the whole course of the observations now made we may infer that the law was not superadded about four hundred years after the death of abraham in order that it might lead the chosen people away from christ but on the contrary to keep them in suspense until his advent to inflame their desire and confirm their expectation that they might not become dispirited by the long delay by the law i understand not only the ten commandments which contain a complete rule of life but the whole system of religion delivered by the hand of Moses. Moses was not appointed as a lawgiver to do away with the blessing promised to the race of Abraham. Nay, we see that he is constantly reminding the Jews of the free covenant which had been made with their fathers, and of which they were heirs, as if he had been sent for the purpose of renewing it. This is most clearly manifested by the ceremonies, for what could be more vain or frivolous than for men to reconcile themselves to God by offering him the foul odor produced by burning the fat of beasts, or to wipe away their own impurities by the sprinkling themselves with water or blood. In short, the whole legal worship, if considered by itself apart from the types and shadows of corresponding truth, is a mere mockery. Wherefore, both in Stephen's address, Acts 7.44, and in the Epistle to the Hebrews, great weight is justly given to the passage in which god says to moses look that thou make them after the pattern which was showed thee on the mount exodus twenty five verse forty had there not been some spiritual end to which they were directed the jews in the observance of them would have deluded themselves as much as the gentiles in their vanities profane men who have never made religion their serious study cannot bear without disgust to hear of such a multiplicity of rites. They not merely wonder why God fatigued his ancient people with such a mass of ceremonies, but they despise and ridicule them as childish toys. This they do because they attend not to the end, from which, if the legal figures are separated, they cannot escape the charge of vanity. But the type shows that God did not enjoin sacrifice in order that he might occupy his worshippers with earthly exercises, but rather that he might raise their minds to something higher. This is clear even from his own nature. Being a spirit, he is delighted only with spiritual worship. 
The same thing is testified by the many passages in which the prophets accuse the Jews of stupidity for imagining that mere sacrifices have any value in the sight of God. Did they by this mean to derogate in any respect from the law? By no means, but as interpreters of its true meaning, they wished in this way to turn the attention of the people to the end which they ought to have had in view, but from which they generally wandered. From the grace offered to the Jews we may certainly infer that the law was not a stranger to Christ. Moses declared the end of the adoption of the Israelites to be that they should be, quote, a kingdom of priests and an holy nation, Exodus 19, verse 6. This they could not attain without a greater and more excellent atonement than the blood of beasts. For what could be less in accordance with reason than that the sons of Adams, who, from hereditary taint, are all born the slaves of sin, should be raised to royal dignity, and in this way made partakers of the glory of God, if the noble distinction were not derived from some other source? How, moreover, could the priestly office exist in vigor among those whose vices rendered them abominable in the sight of God, if they were not consecrated in a holy head? Wherefore, Peter elegantly transposes the words of Moses, teaching that the fullness of grace of which the Jews had a foretaste under the law is exhibited in Christ. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 the transposition of the words intimates that those to whom Christ has appeared in the gospel have obtained more than their fathers inasmuch as they are all endued with priestly and royal honor and can, therefore, trusting to their mediator, appear with boldness in the presence of God. 2. It is to be observed, by the way, that the kingdom, which was at length erected in the family of David, is part of the law, and is comprehended under the dispensation of Moses, whence it follows that, as well in the whole tribe of Levi as in the posterity of David, Christ was exhibited to the eyes of the Israelites as in a double mirror. For, as I lately observed, in no other way could those who were the slaves of sin and death, and defiled with corruption, be either kings or priests. Hence appears the perfect truth of Paul's statement, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Galatians 3 verses 24 and 19. For Christ not yet having been made familiarly known to the Jews, they were like children whose weakness could not bear a full knowledge of heavenly things. How they were led to Christ by the ceremonial law has already been adverted to, and may be made more intelligible by several passages in the prophets. Although they were required, in order to appease God, to approach him daily with new sacrifices, yet Isaiah promises that all their sins would be expiated by one single sacrifice, and with this Daniel concurs, Isaiah 53 verse 5, Daniel 9 verses 26 and 27. The priests appointed from the tribe of Levi entered the sanctuary, but it was once said of a single priest, The Lord has sworn and will not repent, Thou art a priest for ever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse 4. The unction of oil was then visible, but Daniel in vision declares that there will be another unction. Not to dwell on this, the author of the epistle to the Hebrews proves clearly and at length 
from the fourth to the eleventh chapter, that ceremonies were vain and of no value, unless as bringing us to Christ. In regard to the Ten Commandments, we must, in like manner, attend to the statement of Paul, that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth, Romans 10, verse 4, and again, that ministers of the New Testament were not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. The former passage intimates that it is in vain to teach righteousness by precept, until Christ bestow it by free imputation, and the regeneration of the Spirit. Hence he properly calls Christ the end or fulfilling of the law, because it would avail us nothing to know what God demands, did not Christ come to the succor of those who are laboring, and oppressed under an intolerable yoke and burden. In another place, he says that the law was added because of transgressions, Galatians 3 verse 19, that it might humble men under a sense of their condemnation. Moreover, inasmuch as this is the only true preparation for Christ, the statements, though made in different words, perfectly agree with each other. But since he had to dispute with perverse teachers, who pretended that men merited justification by the works of the law, he was sometimes obliged, in refuting their error, to speak of the law in a more restricted sense, merely as law, though in other respects the covenant of free adoption is comprehended under it. 3. But in order that a sense of guilt may urge us to seek for pardon, it is of importance to know how our being instructed in the moral law renders us more inexcusable. If it is true that a perfect righteousness is set before us in the law, it follows that the complete observance of it is perfect righteousness in the sight of God that is, a righteousness by which a man may be deemed and pronounced righteous at the divine tribunal. Wherefore Moses, after promulgating the law, hesitates not to call heaven and earth to witness that he had set life and death, good and evil, before the people. Nor can it be denied that the reward of eternal salvation, as promised by the Lord, awaits the perfect obedience of the law. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19. Again, however, it is of importance to understand in what way we perform that obedience for which we justly entertain the hope of that reward. For of what use is it to see that the reward of eternal life depends on the observance of the law, unless it moreover appears whether it be in our power in that way to attain to eternal life? Herein, then, the weakness of the law is manifested, for in none of us is that righteousness of the law manifested, and therefore, being excluded from the promises of life, we again fall under the curse. I state not only what happens, but what must necessarily happen. The doctrine of the law transcending our capacity, a man may indeed look from a distance at the promises held forth, but he cannot derive any benefit from them. The only thing, therefore, remaining for him is, from their excellence to form a better estimate of his own misery, while he considers that the hope of salvation is cut off, and he is threatened with certain death. On the other hand, those fearful denunciations which strike not at a few individuals, but at every individual without exceptions, rise up. Rise up, I say, and with inexorable severity, pursue us, so that nothing but instant death is presented by the law.
before. Therefore, if we look merely to the law, the result must be despondency, confusion, and despair, seeing that by it we are all cursed and condemned, while we are kept far away from the blessedness which it holds forth to its observers. Is the Lord, then, you will ask, only sporting with us? Is it not the next thing to mockery, to hold out the hope of happiness, to invite and exhort us to it, to declare that it is set before us, while all the while the entrance to it is precluded and quite shut up? I answer, although the promises, in so far as they are conditional, depend on a perfect obedience of the law, which is nowhere to be found, they have not, however, been given in vain. For when we have learned that the promises would be fruitless and unavailing, did not God accept us of his free goodness without any view to our works, and when, having so learned, we, by faith, embrace the goodness thus offered in the gospel, the promises, with all their annexed conditions, are fully accomplished. For God, while bestowing all things upon us freely, crowns his goodness by not disdaining our imperfect obedience, forgiving its deficiencies, accepting it as if it were complete, and so bestowing upon us the full amount of what the law has promised. But as this point will be more fully discussed in treating of justification by faith, we shall not now follow it further at present. 5. What has been said as to the impossible observance of the law, it will be proper briefly to explain and confirm, the general opinion being, that nothing can be more absurd. Hence Jerome has not hesitated to denounce anathema against it. What Jerome thought I care not. Let us inquire what is the truth. I will not here enter into a long and intricate discussion on the various kinds of possibility. By impossible I mean that which never was, and, being prevented by the ordination and decree of God, will never be. I say that if we go back to the remotest period, we shall not find a single saint who, clothed with a mortal body, ever attained to such perfection as to love the Lord with all his heart and soul and mind and strength, and, on the other hand, not one who has not felt the power of concupiscence. Who can deny this? I am aware indeed of a kind of saints whom a foolish superstition imagines, and whose purity the angels of heaven scarcely equal. This, however, is repugnant both to scripture and experience. But I say further, that no saint ever will attain to perfection, so long as he is in the body. Scripture bears clear testimony to this effect. There is no man that sinneth not, saith Solomon, 1 Kings 8 verse 46. David says, In thy sight shall no man living be justified, Psalm 143 verse 2. Job also, in numerous passages, affirms the same thing. But the clearest of all is Paul, who declares that the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, Galatians 5 verse 17. And he proves that, quote, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, end quote, for the simple reason that it is written, quote, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Galatians 3.10, Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Intimating, or rather assuming it as confessed, that none can so continue. But whatever has been declared by scripture must be regarded as perpetual and hence necessary. 
The Pelagians annoyed Augustine with the sophism that it was insulting to God to hold that he orders more than believers are able by his grace to perform, and he, in order to evade it, acknowledged that the Lord was able, if he chose, to raise a mortal man to angelic purity, but that he had never done and never would do it, because so the scripture had declared. This I deny not, but I add that there is no use in absurdly disputing concerning the power of God in opposition to his truth. And therefore there is no ground for caviling when it is said that that thing cannot be which the scriptures declare will never be. But if it is the word that is objected to, I refer to the answer which our Savior gave to his disciples when they asked, Who then can be saved? With men, said he, this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Matthew 19, verse 25. Augustine argues in the most convincing manner that while in the flesh we never can give God the love which we owe him. Quote, love so follows knowledge that no man can perfectly love God who has not previously a full comprehension of his goodness. End quote. So long as we are pilgrims in the world, we see through a glass darkly, and therefore our love is imperfect. Let it therefore be held incontrovertible, that, in consequence of the feebleness of our nature, it is impossible for us, so long as we are in the flesh, to fulfill the law. This will also be proved elsewhere from the writings of Paul, Romans 8, verse 3. 6. That the whole matter may be made clearer, let us take a succinct view of the office and use of the moral law. Now this office and use seems to me to consist of three parts. First, by exhibiting the righteousness of God. In other words, the righteousness which alone is acceptable to God. It admonishes every one of his own unrighteousness, certiorates, convicts, and finally condemns him. This is necessary in order that man, who is blind and intoxicated with self-love, may be brought at once to know and to confess his weakness and impurity. For until his vanity is made perfectly manifest, he is puffed up with infatuated confidence in his own powers, and never can be brought to feel their feebleness so long as he measures them by a standard of his own choice. So soon, however, as he begins to compare them with the requirements of the law, he has something to tame his presumption. How high soever his opinion of his own powers may be, he immediately feels that they pant under the heavy load, then totter and stumble, and finally fall and give way. He, then, who is schooled by the law, lays aside the arrogance which formerly blinded him. In like manner must he be cured of pride, the other disease under which we have said that he labors. So long as he is permitted to appeal to his own judgment, he substitutes a hypocritical for a real righteousness, and, contented with this, sets up certain factitious observances in opposition to the grace of God. But after he is forced to weigh his conduct in the balance of the law, renouncing all dependence on this fancied righteousness, he sees that he is at an infinite distance from holiness, and, on the other hand, that he teems with innumerable vices of which he formerly seemed free. The recesses in which conscupiscence lies hid are so deep and torturous that they easily elude our view, and hence the apostle had good reason for saying, quote, 
I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet, end quote. For, if it be not brought forth from its lurking places, it miserably destroys in secret before its fatal sting is discerned. 7. Thus the law is a kind of mirror. As in a mirror we discover any stains upon our face, so in the law we behold, first our impotence, then, in consequence of it, our iniquity, and finally the curse as the consequence of both. He who has no power of following righteousness is necessarily plunged in the mire of iniquity, and this iniquity is immediately followed by the curse. Accordingly, the greater the transgression of which the law convicts us, the severer the judgment to which we are exposed. To this effect is the Apostle's declaration that, by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3, verse 20. By these words he only points out the first office of the law as experienced by sinners not yet regenerated. In conformity to this, it is said, quote, The law entered that the offense might abound, end quote, and accordingly that it is the ministration of death, that it worketh wrath and kills, Romans 5, verse 20, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7, Romans 4, verse 15. For there cannot be a doubt that the clearer the consciousness of guilt, the greater the increase of sin, because then to transgression a rebellious feeling against the lawgiver is added. All that remains for the law is to arm the wrath of God for the destruction of the sinner, for by itself it can do nothing but accuse, condemn, and destroy him. Thus Augustine says, quote, if the spirit of grace be absent, the law is present only to convict and slay us, end quote. But to say this neither insults the law, nor derogates in any degree from its excellence. Assuredly, if our whole will were formed and disposed to obedience, the mere knowledge of the law would be sufficient for salvation. But since our carnal and corrupt nature is at enmity with the divine law, and is in no degree amended by its discipline, the consequence is that the law which, if it had been properly attended to, would have given life, becomes the occasion of sin and death. When all are convicted of transgression, the more it declares the righteousness of God, the more, on the other hand, it discloses our iniquity, the more certainly it assures us that life and salvation are treasured up as the reward of righteousness, the more certainly it assures us that the unrighteous will perish. So far, however, are these qualities from throwing disgrace on the law, that their chief tendency is to give a brighter display of the divine goodness. For they show that it is only our weakness and depravity that prevents us from enjoying the blessedness which the law openly sets before us. Hence additional sweetness is given to divine grace, which comes to our aid without the law, and additional loveliness to the mercy which confers it, because they proclaim that God is never weary in doing good, and in loading us with new gifts. 8. But while the unrighteousness and condemnation of all are attested by the law, it does not follow, if we make the proper use of it, that we are immediately to give up all hope and rush headlong on despair. No doubt it has some such effect upon the reprobate, but this is owing to their obstinacy. With the children of God, the effect is different. The apostle testifies that the law pronounces its sentence of condemnation in order, quote, 
that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Romans 3 verse 19. In another place, however, the same apostle declares that, quote, God has concluded them all in unbelief, end quote. Not that he might destroy all, or allow all to perish, but that, quote, he might have mercy upon all, Romans 11 verse 32. In other words, that divesting themselves of an absurd opinion of their own virtue, they may perceive how they are wholly dependent on the hand of God, that feeling how naked and destitute they are, they may take refuge in his mercy, rely upon it, and cover themselves up entirely with it. Renouncing all righteousness and merit, and clinging to mercy alone, as offered in Christ to all who long and look for it in true faith. In the precepts of the law, God is seen as the rewarder only of perfect righteousness, a righteousness of which all are destitute, and, on the other hand, as the stern avenger of wickedness. But in Christ, his countenance beams forth full of grace and gentleness towards poor unworthy sinners. End of section 12